Turn in your Bibles to uh, Titus chapter 1. We're going to continue. And before I jump into Titus, I just wanted to highlight a really important and exciting uh, announcement that you should have seen in the, uh, both in the weekly email that Jason sent uh, on Wednesday this week and in the e-liturgy and in the Opportunities for Community and Mission. Brain and Grace, this has been something that's been coming for its tight up here, man. Um, it's just, this has been coming for a long time, uh, but we wanted to, to inform you and let you know that as of August 1st, we are planning to officially join the Sojourn Network and partner with the Sojourn Network. So that's, um, you know, I don't know how that strikes you. Maybe you feel like, oh, didn't we do that already? Or maybe you're like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. I hope it's not the latter. But the fact is, this has been something that has been in process for a very long time. A lot of discussions, interactions. Most recently, we met a number of leaders from the church, uh, missional community group leaders and deacons met with uh, several leaders from the uh, from Sojourn Network. Uh, that was originally, we were hoping to have that an, be an on-site visit where someone from Sojourn would be able to preach here and we'd have more kind of public interaction. But just needless to say that the, the interactions that we had through that call, I think, just reinforce, I think, what we've already been feeling and experiencing that really, we really feel like this is God's provision for us as a church. We've been kind of on our own, essentially, completely independent for a number of years now. And that's that was never, ever a place that we wanted to stay. And we be believe that through Sojourn Network, God has provided us an opportunity to, uh, to partner with a broader network that's really going to bring benefits to us as a church, and hopefully that we can bring benefits as well to the network. So you'll be hearing more about what that means, and also we'll, we'll have some more time to really kind of formally acknowledge that and discuss that and celebrate that uh, coming up. I just wanted to make sure that you caught that announcement. Let's look at God's Word, Titus chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5 here, going through verse 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If, everyone, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word and for your spirit. You haven't left us alone to figure out what it means to, to, to be in relationship with you and to live as the body of Christ, as the church that you have established. And so I pray that you would instruct us from your word this morning and help us to see what it means to, to live out the, the principles, some principles of what it means to be the church and, and particularly uh, leaders that you've established in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is jumping straight into business here. If you remember where we ended at the end of last week, the first four verses are what we typically see in all of the New Testament epistles. It's a, it's a very kind of eloquent and lofty introduction that lays out Paul's personal kind of credentials as an, an apostle and his mission as an apostle. But he immediately turns after that very lofty introduction 
straight to very practical concerns. And I think we can understand this to mean, I think what, what, this, uh, what this really highlights for me is that there is a very strong relationship between Paul and Titus. This, you know, there's, there's a common background for the work that he's writing about, and he doesn't have to spend a lot of time with formalities, uh, introducing himself, laying a kind of a, a groundwork, theological groundwork. He, he can shoot it straight with Titus, and that's what he's doing. He's jumping straight into business, and the specific business that he's addressing here, which is what we will spend our time on this morning, is the appointment, the establishment of elders in what appear to be relatively young churches in Crete. If you, don't, if you aren't familiar with Crete, it is a small island, relatively small island off the southern coast of Greece. It's about half the size of the, the state of Connecticut in terms of landmass, so relatively small. But it's extremely mountainous. So just for some kind of point of reference, the tallest mountain, the tallest peak on Crete is 8,000 feet above sea level. So that's way taller than any mountain on the East Coast. But it's a relatively small island. So you can literally go from sea level to 8,000 feet back to sea level in the span of about 30 miles, like the distance between here and Lancaster. We know almost nothing about Paul's time in Crete. It's not referenced in any of his uh, missionary journeys in the book of Acts. It's not referenced in any of his other epistles. He doesn't make reference to it there. Some scholars believe that, <clears throat> that Paul went to Crete as part of a fourth missionary journey that happened after what is recorded at the end of Acts. If you know, that the book of Acts ends with Paul being imprisoned in Rome. So some scholars believe that he was eventually released from that imprisonment. He went on one final missionary journey before he was then finally imprisoned again and martyred in Rome. What we do see from this text is that Paul was personally involved in planting a number of churches in Crete. There's a number, he references all of the towns that, that Titus should establish uh, elders in. And we see that there is some unfinished business that needs to be put in place in order to ensure that these churches are established, built up, and encouraged in their faith. And we shouldn't miss the connection to what Paul described in verses 1 and 2, which Kenny already referenced this morning, as Paul's personal mission. Right? He is established as an apostle for the building up of the faith of the, of the church, for their knowledge in the Lord, and for their hope of eternal salvation. So, one clear way, it seems, that Paul does this is through the establishment of elders. We see actually the same exact pattern in Acts 14, which is Paul's first missionary journey. And it's, so it says in verse 21, When they had preached the gospel to that city, speaking of the city of Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So you hear that same language, right? Strengthening their faith, pointing them to the hope of eternal life. And then listen to what it says. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So it seems the pattern of Paul's ministry is make disciples, plant a church, establish elders, move on. What we see from this pattern is that at least 
I think in Paul's view, and I think we'll see from the rest of the New Testament, this is what the rest of the New Testament would, would say as well. Elders are essential for the health, protection, and fruitfulness of the New Testament church. John Stott says it this way, the main way to regulate, regulate and consolidate the life of the church is to sur- secure for it a gifted and conscientious pastoral oversight. So what I want to do this morning in the time that we have is just answer two simple questions from this text. Question one, what are elders? Question two, why are elders? And then I want to spend a few minutes at the end talking about how we have sought to kind of practically apply what this actually looks like in practice at Brandywine Grace. So question one, what are elders? We need to start by, look, by addressing some terms here, kind of defining some terms. There's actually two terms that are used in this passage that we, actually, that we see consistently across the New Testament. The first term you see in verse 5, uh, elders, right? So uh, Titus established elders in every town. The second term comes in verse 7, where Paul is describing the qualifications. He says, for an overseer. So that second term is overseer. The first term, elder, is the Greek word presbyteros. The second term, overseer, or it can also be translated bishop, is episkopos. You probably hear in those terms Presbyterian and Episcopal, which are two streams of uh, Christian denominations that are, I would say, uniquely defined by their church government structures, the way that they interpret these terms about church leadership. But what we see is that these terms are actually used inter- interchangeably and in parallel throughout the New Testament. So Acts 2017, Paul sends to Ephesus, and it says he called the elders, presbyteros of the church, to come to him. And then in verse 28, in speaking to this group, he says, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos. So we have both terms in parallel. First Peter 5, Peter says, exhort the elders among you as so i exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder myself peter is speaking shepherd the flock of god that is among you exercising oversight so this this term oversight is the same root as overseer in first timothy 3 we uh which is a parallel uh passage to this one that we'll talk a little bit more about later Paul uses the term overseer only in this term. So he says, it, uh, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then he goes on to describe the qualifications. And then James 5, if anyone among you is sick, let him call to the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Two different terms, slightly different emphases that describe one essential and distinct office of church leadership. Elder emphasizes a distinguished maturity. Overseer emphasizes governing authority. I think it's important, just as a side note, to to mention that there's really no indication here, either here in Titus or in the parallel passage we have in 1 Timothy, that the term elder is a designation of age. Um, The... The only kind of indication of, even if we could call it age, is in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul says that, that a, a potential elder should not be a recent convert. But that's clearly a designation of maturity in the faith, not of chronological age. Calvin, John Calvin, commenting on this passage, says it this way. It's well known that it was not on account of age 
that they received this appellation, specifically the, the title of elder. For sometimes those who are still young, such as Timothy, and I think we could put Titus in the same category, were admitted to this rank. But in all languages, it has been customary to apply this honorable designation to all rulers. Elders slash overseers are the distinct office of church leadership in the New Testament church. And because of this unique role and responsibility, Paul is very careful to describe what the qualifications of this person should be. I think we can understand these qualifications in two broad categories. Negative qualifications, so things that should not characterize an elder, and positive qualifications, what, what should characterize him. I was thinking about the analogy of buying a car, like Kenny's car died. If he goes to the car dealership, there are clearly some things that he doesn't want his, that his new car to have, right? He doesn't want the body to be totally rusted out. He's experienced that already. He, uh, he doesn't want the windshield to be cracked open, probably. You know, there's, a lot, there's probably a long list of things that he doesn't want. But it would be insufficient to have a shiny, you know, perfect exterior of a car that has no engine in it, right? There are some things that positively the car has to have. And so I think we can, we can view these qualifications in a similar way. The negative qualifications, I think, can be summarized in this term, above reproach. And it's a term that's used twice here in this passage and also in the passage in, in 1 Timothy. Above reproach can also be translated as blameless or unimpeachable. It clearly does not mean perfect. I mean, we know that no one would meet the qualifications if, if the qualification was perfect. But there's three kind of broad categories. Above reproach or blameless in marriage and family life. Blameless or are above reproach in personal conduct and above reproach in doctrine and orthodoxy. I think we can summarize this in this way. Not being characterized by anything that would undermine his authority as a leader in the church or his witness outside of the church. Calvin, again, this is my last Calvin quote, um, says it this way. An elder ought not to be marked by any disgrace that would detract from his authority. There will certainly not be found a man who is free from every fault. But it is one thing to be burdened by ordinary faults that do not hurt a man's reputation because the most excellent men share them, but quite another to have a name that's held in infamy and besmirched by some scandalous disgrace. That's vivid language, right? So negative qualifications should not be, I mean, he should be above reproach, blameless, unimpeachable. Positive qualifications, I think we can summarize in this way. Possessing the maturity, character, and gifting to care for, protect, correct, and equip the church in the truth of God's word. So a potential elder must embody a maturity that comes from having applied the word of God in their own life, so that they can help others apply it in their life. A potential elder must have the discernment to identify both significant and subtle drifts in doctrinal orthodoxy so that they can lovingly correct those who may be drifting personally and sharply rebuke those who might be seeking to, to damage the church. And they must be able to feed the flock, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, 
through the teaching of God's word so that the church is built up and equipped for the work of ministry. It doesn't mean that all elders bear the same responsibility or gifting in terms of public teaching and preaching, but they all must be able to teach sound doctrine and refute false doctrine. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about these qualifications, but I want to kind of drill in on one particular uh, point here, because at first reading, it, it's confusing. And maybe you, if you're following closely and listening closely, you, you may have had a question. Well, what does that mean? It comes from verse 6, specifically the second half of verse 6, but I'll start at the beginning. Paul says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers— what does that mean? Does it mean that an elder's children, if he has them, should, must have all put their faith in Christ for, you know, in a saving sense of salvation and are continuing in faith? There, there are some people who believe that. And would go so far as to say, you know, if, if a man has six children and one of them eventually wanders from the faith, he should be disqualified from eldership. But I think there are some very difficult and unsettling implications of that interpretation, especially, I think, in regard to what it means in terms of our role as parents in the salvation of our children. But more importantly, I think there are some very important, I think, and strong evidence, both from this passage and the parallel passage we see in First Timothy, that that may not be what Paul is talking about. So let's just look a little— dig into this a little bit. First, depending on your translation, uh, you probably have a footnote next to that term believers. And if you look down in the footnotes, it will reference the fact that this term can be also be translated as faithful or trustworthy. So uh, there's an—and we actually see this use in both ways. We see Paul use this term, this exact term, in both ways in his own writing. So the, the language itself doesn't give us a conclusive answer, but it opens up another possibility for interpretation. Second, Paul makes a, second, makes a contrast just after he says uh, children must be believers. He makes a contrast to what to what seemed to be contrary to what he's describing in that first section. So what does he say? He said, they should not be open to the charge of debauchery, which is kind of open immorality, and, uh, and insubordination. So kind of open unruliness and, uh, and rebellion. Those qualifications are clearly kind of external behavioral qualifications, right? They are not spiritual qualifications. And so... It gives, I think, additional weight to the interpretation that Paul is not talking about saving faith. I think the clearest uh, evidence and support that we have here, though, for a different interpretation comes in the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3. So we have here almost identical uh, sections of Scripture. Paul is writing to very close uh, disciples who are involved in the, in the care of the church. He's describing the qualifications for eldership. And in this section to Timothy, he actually flushes out a little bit more, I think, what his thinking is on this particular topic. So in verse 4, he says, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? Paul's point here is that the character and quality of a man's leadership at home will in some way be evident in the character of his children. 
Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be challenges. It won't be, doesn't mean that there will be uh, even significant challenges and periods of, of difficulty in parenting. And it certainly does not guarantee, I think we, we can say conclusively from the rest of Council of Scripture, it does not mean that his, his children, if, if, a, if a man or, and, and woman parent their children in the right way, they will automatically be saved. That does not, that's not true. And I want to be clear about that. But the patterns of faithfulness or neglect will bear fruit over time and will be evident over time. Brian Chappell says it this way, Faithful leadership is not determined in the absence of difficulties, but in the prudent discipline and handling of problems when difficulties come. Patterns of disbelief and unruliness in a man's household should cause questions about his aptitude for church leadership. But occasional or exceptional difficulties, well handled, should not disqualify. Rather, they are precisely what do qualify. These are not easy issues to navigate. Especially, I think, when we're, we're facing real challenges and, and difficulties in our parenting. And there's, and there's a lot more that has been said on these, uh, on these qualifications and that could be said. What I hope you'll take from this, though, is the essence and the flavor of what Paul is trying to communicate here in terms of the qualifications of an elder. This is not an exhaustive checklist of every possible qualification and condition that the scriptures could give us. And I think it's actually important to note that there are some uh, very blaring things that are missing from this qualification list. So education, intelligence, eloquence of speech, charisma, and leadership. Paul does not put those as qualifications of an elder, even age. And I think even in relation to particular giftings, with the exception of... Um, with the exception of being able to teach, there, there really isn't any kind of spiritual gifting that Paul says an elder must have this particular spiritual gift. What we have here, I think, is a sketch portrait of a man of maturity and character who's able to handle the Word of God with integrity, lead the church in humility, and last one, because I lost my train of thought, care for the church in love. Handle the word with integrity, lead the church in humility, and care for the church in love. That's what an elder is. That's what elders are. One last comment here, I think, related to this first question of what are elders. Paul instructs Titus at the beginning to appoint elders, plural, in every town where they've planted churches. Anytime that elders are referenced in the New Testament church, they are always, always, always referenced in plural. You will not find any case in Scripture in the New Testament where someone writes to a church or goes to a church and calls the elder singular of the church. Now, I'm going to reference this a little bit more when we talk about how this our particular kind of expression of these principles at Brandywine Grace. But if you want to know why we have multiple elders and why we regularly seek to add more elders, it's because of this reason. We believe that healthy churches have a plurality of elders. All right, let's move to the second question. Why are elders? Why do elders exist? Why should they exist? Should they exist? Legitimate question. If every... 
believer has a direct relationship with God through the Spirit, and we believe that they do, if every believer is an equal recipient of God's grace in Christ, which we believe they are, and if all of us have access to the same scriptures, why should there be leaders or structures of authority at all in the church? And to be clear, there are some churches that think there shouldn't be. There sh there, that, that there should be no additional authority in the church beyond the congregation itself. So even if they do appoint leaders, the ultimate authority of those leaders rests in the congregation, not in in God or in, in any kind of or ordinance above the congregation. Now, I won't be able to answer this question exhaustively, but I do want to draw out a few points, I think, directly from the text that speak to why we believe that elders not only should exist, but why they also are called to exercise authority, particular authority, in their leadership and oversight. The first clue comes from uh, verse 7. So Paul you, kind of adds another term here to the discussion. He says, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. That term steward, I think, is an illustrative term. A steward, particularly in the context that Paul is writing, is typically a servant in a household, but he's not just a common servant. He's really the manager of the house. He's responsible for the oversight of all of the day-to-day -day operations of the household, of providing the wages or provisions to the other servants and even to the children of the household. There is a designated authority from the head of the house, the master of the house, to a steward in order to ensure that the, the affairs of the house are managed in an orderly and proper way. And so when Paul refers to elders or overseers as God's steward, I think there's a clear implication that elders have been delegated responsibility and authority from God to, for the care and oversight of the church. We see this as well, I think, in Hebrews 13. And I'm jumping around here, but the reason I'm jumping around is because I want you to see this isn't just Paul's particular thinking about this. You know, this is, uh, these are principles that are spread across all of the writers of the New Testament. So Hebrews 13, the, the writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That's overseer language. As those who will give an account. Now that's sobering language for elders and overseers because he's talking about giving an account not to the congregation but to God. The other image that we see most often referenced in relation to elders as a descriptor of elders and overseers is the image of a shepherd. So Peter uh, specifically says, uh, and maybe I didn't read this when I referenced this passage, 1 Peter 5, Peter says, shepherd the flock in speaking to the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then he continues with an analogy that's very similar to the analogy of stewardship. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there is a shepherding responsibility that has been delegated to elders and overseers from the chief shepherd. The imagery of shepherding certainly carries a strong implication of care and feeding. A good shepherd leads his sheep to uh, to green pastures so that they can eat. And this, I think, highlights the critical role of the word in feeding and care of the flock. But it also carries an implication of protection. And I think we start to see this at the end of this passage, but you'll see it a lot more clearly in the next section that Jason is going to, going to preach next week. 
The metaphor of sheep, and I'm just going to be straight up with you, it's not a flattering image. You guys know this, right? I mean, sheep are not smart. And they don't have any defenses at all. So they are very susceptible to getting in a dangerous or even perilous situation just because of their own carelessness and lack of attention, and they're very susceptible to attack from, from predators. God has appointed elders, overseers, pastors, shepherd leaders for the care, protection, and direction of the flock. Why? Because we're all inclined to wander when left on our own. And this includes elders. This is one of the most important reasons why we believe it's essential for a plurality of elders. If one leader goes off stray, there's a very good chance he could take the whole flock with him. Tim Whitmer tells a story of a, of a small um, village, I think in Hungary, either Hungary or Turkey, where the, the village kind of collectively had a herd of sheep, about 1,500 sheep. And one of the sheep accidentally wandered over a cliff. And every single one of those 1,500 sheep wandered over after him. And 400 of them died. Why? Because after 400 sheep piled up at the bottom, the other ones kind of bounced on top. But the point is, when one, there's only one person bringing leadership, and they lead off, off a cliff, there's a good chance everyone's going off with them. If there's a plurality of elders, and one goes off track, the others are safeguards. It's a safeguard for the elders. It's a safeguard for the church. The last thing I want to say here is that uh, on this question of why elders, why are elders, nowhere in this description of elders and overseers do we see that leaders are the only ones or even the primary ones who are doing the actual work of ministry either inside the church or outside the church. So discipleship, evangelism, mercy ministry, etc. And in fact, Ephesians 4 shows us that God has given leaders to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So God has given leaders for the purpose of equipping the whole church to be equipped and fruitful in using their gifts in ministry. Elders certainly have a work to do. Let's be clear. Elders have a clear responsibility and work to do. But the end result of that work should be that the church as a whole is built up and equipped to, be, to use their gifts and be fruitful in the work of ministry. All right. Last point. I want to just give, a, say a few words about what this actually looks like in practice. How do we uh, seek, are we seeking to apply these principles at Brandywine Grace? The first point, which I've already referenced twice now, is that we believe uh, strongly in the need and necessity of a plurality of elders. So right now, and, and beyond that, I would say we believe there's real health and strength in having both staff elders, people who are paid uh, pastors of the church, and non-staff elders. So right now we have five elders, three are paid uh, positions of the church, and two, Gary Eberly and I, are not. So, um, and and at, we've had as many as four, I think, non-staff elders and, and three staff elders. There's no um, exact formula, but we believe there's value and health in both. Second thing, elders are identified and put forward for affirmation at Brand New Wine Grace, and I'll, I'll talk about that process in just a little bit, for two particular, uh, based on two things. The first are the qualifications that we described in that first section. Qualifications. The second is the job description that we, dis that we discussed in the second section. 
care, protection, feeding, and direction. Those are the two reasons why we would identify and put forward an elder at Brandywine Grace. Elders are not identified based on specific needs or roles that need to be filled in the church. So if we have a gap, we feel like we need someone to lead evangelism or global missions, we don't go looking for someone that can do that and say, oh, do they meet the qualifications of an elder? Now, it doesn't mean that individual elders don't have particular areas of focus that they have particular gifting in and they can bring particular leadership to, but that's not the, the intention or the motivation or, or anywhere actually part of the discussion in terms of identifying and nominating elders. Staff are hired to fill specific positions. We, we hire staff either as pastors or as, not as pastors, as administrative staff. We hire, if we're going to, if the church is going to pay someone, it's to do a specific role. And so they, maybe they need to have the qualifications of an elder as well, but they also need to have a specific skill set to fill a specific role. That's the way that we have applied these principles here. A few words about the process that we have for identification and affirmation. I think this is where there's important application uh, for, for the church. The Constitution, our Constitution, defines a process for the identification, nomination, and affirmation of elders. The, the current team of elders is responsible for identifying the candidates that we feel meet those qualifications. Now, it doesn't mean that we would we do that all on our own or that we do that completely in a vacuum, but the elder, the current eldership is responsible for identifying those candidates. If we unanimously agree that uh, someone meets the qualifications, then we would put that person before the church for, uh, to start the process of evaluation and, or the, the, to continue the process of evaluation, I should say, and then ultimately affirmation. There must be a minimum of two months between when we put forward a candidate for affirmation and the actual affirmation uh, process itself. And this two-month period is critical for the evaluation of elders. And I, and I, I really want, to, I want you to see, especially if you're a partner of Brandywine Grace, I, I hope that you know this already, but partners at BGC have a critical role to play in the evaluation and affirmation of elders. So, First of all, the first application is you should know the qualifications that you're evaluating against and the job that you're affirming an elder to do. That's the first point. But you also should see yourself as having an active role. This, we're not looking for a rubber stamp here. And the reason is that we can't fully know anyone. So certainly if we're putting someone forward as an elder, we, there's been a process of evaluation. It's someone that should be well-known both by the elders and by the church, but we can't fully know anyone. And we would hope that the, we, not just hope, but an elder should have relationships broadly and be involved broadly in the church so that other people can speak into that affirmation process, either to confirm, hopefully to confirm what we believe that we see, but also to raise questions that we may not see and concerns that we may not see. At the end of this evaluation period, all partners of BGC are asked to affirm or not affirm the candidate that we've put forward. And we have committed ourselves in the Constitution that we will not install an elder if, we, if he does not receive two-thirds majority affirmation. So we've, th this is not just a rubber stamp in the Constitution. Now, we would hope that, and it has been our experience, that it's way more than two-thirds. Okay, so we've never had a case that's, you know, oh boy, this is really a, a squeaker. It's, 
it's an issue, ultimately, it's an issue of leadership. If two-thirds of the, the church, or if a third of the church has serious concerns and isn't willing to affirm an elder, then that's going to raise some serious questions. Maybe we need to step back and, and evaluate more and have more discussion on this. A lot more could be said here, but what I really want to emphasize is that you, partners of BGC, have a critical role in this process. And so I hope that you, uh, you see that, and I hope that this has been helpful for you to understand what, uh, the, uh, what the qualifications of an elder are and why an elder, why, what you're affirming an elder to do. Historically, this process has run on more or less an annual cycle where we have put forward candidates uh, for both for deacons and for elders, usually around the first half of the year, and we have an affirmation either beginning of the summer or end of the summer, first second quarter. Um, the sorry the sorry I just got uh, got off track there. So this is historically the way that the process has, has worked. If you've been around for a little while, you know that. Uh, we put forward Gabe Mahalik as a potential elder candidate more than a year ago now, okay? So, uh, and for a number of reasons, we chose to postpone his affirmation, and then we kind of ran straight into uh, COVID-19, which has derailed all of our plans. And so, uh, what I want you to know is that this is something that we are going to be turning our attention back to in the coming months, both the identification and affirmation of elders and deacons, including the process that was started with Gabe more than a year ago. So that didn't just disappear or fall off the table. This is something that we believe is important. It's something we haven't done now for almost two years, uh, maybe even more than two years in the life of our church. And so we believe that it's something that we need to turn our attention back to. The last thing I want to do, uh, I know we're going long here, is give a few, just a very high-level picture of how the eldership functions at BGC. What does it look like in practice? Uh, how, how, do, how do we function as a team of elders? As a very high-level picture, we have two meetings a month that are generally more or less structured around the two priorities that Paul gives in Acts 20:28. 20, pay careful attention to yourself and pay careful attention to all the flock. So one of those meetings is specifically focused on paying attention to ourselves. How are we doing in our relationship with Jesus? How are we feeling in processing different aspects of leadership in the church? Discuss, discussing topics of doctrine uh, and cultural issues that are impacting the church. Praying for the church and for specific partners. Sorry, that's the a second meeting. Um, just, so praying together as, as, a, as a group of elders. The second meeting is focused on leadership and care for the church more broadly. So this is where we're discussing plans or agreeing on strategy and direction for uh, specific areas of church ministry. We're discussing issues of crisis care or church discipline. Uh, this is where we would be identifying uh, elder and deacon candidates and where we're praying for the church. And this is a, a consistent and significant component of our, of our meetings is praying for the church and praying for the partners of Brand New Wine Grace. So Kenny typically leads that first meeting. I have responsibility for the administration and leading this of the second meeting. Um, but each of the elders is responsible to bring topics to that agenda uh, that, that they feel like need to be addressed as part of the eldership. These meetings have a lot of dialogue and discussion and certainly some disagreement. The, the purpose here, the, the goal, is really that every elder has the opportunity to, to honestly and openly share their perspective, that we reason together from the scriptures and from the wisdom that we believe God has revealed, and that 
we prayerfully reach unity in the direction that, that, and the decisions that we take. doesn't mean that we always have unanimity, but we, do, we strive for unity. And by God's grace, I can honestly say that over more than 10 years, I feel like he's helped us to do that. I think we've been, we have experience, I would say, and I, everyone would agree, we've experienced a, a unique uh, and I think God-given unity in, in the way that the elders have functioned. Kenny's going to come and bring a few closing thoughts, but in closing personally, I just want to, I really want to take the opportunity to, to thank you, church, for the ways that you do. You, you care for, support, encourage uh, the elders of Brandywine Grace. And uh, so I can say personally, honestly, that I, it's, it's a privilege to serve as an elder here. And so thank you for the ways that you support us, pray for us. Please continue to do that, and, um, and Kenny will come and bring some, some closing thoughts.